0: Um, I am Susan Lehman, and on behalf of Big Tent USA, welcome to today's Spotlight Speaker Series with Billy Ray, Gretchen Barton, Representative Susan Wild, and moderated by Sanjo Dunning. Big Tent USA is building a pro-democracy coalition to protect the guardrails of democracy, ensure government accountability and transparency, and increase civic participation. I am so pleased to introduce our moderator, Sandro Dunning, for this evening's call. Sanjo is an author and an entrepreneur with expertise on the intersection of culture, business, global affairs, technology, and education. She is actively engaged in a number of public and private initiatives advocating for democratic values globally. She is currently serving on the board of the Truman Center for National Policy, the advisory board of the Thunderbird School of Global Management, and the board of the National Small Business Association. Sanjo has received several awards, including the 2021 Outstanding 50 Asian Americans in Business and the 2021 AmCham Represent Business Transformation Award Women in Business. Welcome, Sanjo, under the tent. We are so honored to have you. Take it away. Thank
1: you, Susan. Um, Thank you for that very warm um, welcome. Uh, I appreciate it. And thank you to everybody for joining us today. Can you all hear me? Yes, I think so. So we're all good. Um, It's always important to get that all. Important sound check. And um, we have a really insightful panel discussion planned for the hour ahead. So let's go ahead and start to welcome our panelists. Uh, as you heard a little earlier, we have Billy Ray joining us. He is an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter. Billy wrote the Oscar-nominated screenplay, uh, Captain Phillips, for which he won the Writers Guild of America Award. He also wrote, directed, and executive-produced. Uh, Showtime's The Comey Rule, which had the biggest debut of any limited series in that network's history. His films as a writer, co-writer, and writer-director include The Hunger Games, Richard Jewell, Shattered Glass, and Breach. He serves on the boards of Common Sense and Big Sunday. And as we'll hear more today, Billy is passionate and believes strongly in democracy, justice, and of course, the Dodgers. Um, Next, we have Gretchen Barton. Gretchen, welcome. She's founder of Worthy Strategy Group and a former research director at Future Majority. She's a deep listening researcher and strategist who has designed and led research initiatives in the political and policy space across America on poverty, the youth vote, global nuclear weapons disarmament, immigration, gender in America, what Americans need in their next president, how Americans know what's true, and what the Democratic and Republican brands mean, and much, much more. She's worked on a wide range of campaigns from mayoral to presidential, and currently she's leading a very interesting initiative. What will it take? Laying the narrative groundwork for the first female president, which I know we would all like to see, and advising on History Wars, a John Hopkins research initiative looking to unpack a way to bring Americans together around a shared future, if not necessarily a shared history. We're also very pleased to have Congresswoman Susan Wild. Welcome, Susan. Um, Congressman Wild is in her third term as member of the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Pennsylvania 7. In the heart of the Lehigh Valley, she is the first woman to ever represent this area in Congress. From September 22, 2022 to January 2023, she was chair of the House Ethics Committee and continues to sit on the committee as a ranking member. She also chairs the New Democratic Coalition climate change task force and is a vice chair of both the congressional labor and working families caucus and the subcommittee on africa global health global human rights and international organizations so a big tent welcome to everyone as susan mentioned earlier our topic today is exploring how voters feel how do they feel um, about america today And how can we better communicate with people across the political divide? A fundamental reality is that for many people, questioning ourselves can make us feel very unsettled. So we often cling to our own assumptions, our own values and our own perspectives, um, regardless of another perspective. We simply double down on the same traditional talking points and perspectives using the same words and the same language. It doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum, we've all done it. In fact, leading organizational psychologist Adam Grant calls this cognitive laziness. People prefer the ease of hanging on to an old view or old perspective over the difficulty of finding a new way or grappling with new ideas. This is no way to live or run a country. We just keep triggering each other. And that's why we're here today. How can we find new ways to persuasively communicate with people who may have a different opinion than our own? That's our focus. Rethinking how we talk about key issues so that we can more successfully engage with people across the political divide. And perhaps today we'll learn a couple of actionable tips as well. So with this context, let's start with you, Billy. You're a screenwriter and you tell in essence stories um, as a storyteller, do you find that to be an effective strategy? How do you start? What's what's your process?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I feel a little bit like a guest on The View, um, <laughs> which I'm comfortable being. Um, in big block letters across the top of my computer monitor, right over Gretchen's head, um, is the question, what is the simple emotional journey? Uh, in essence, what story am I telling? Uh, I think it's really important that politicians or anyone who advocates for anything understand the essence of storytelling as a means of communicating with people. And I I try to help people do that.
1: And so using that story concept, what's the story of America today? What do you see in America?
2: Well, it comes down to some numbers that I learned from Gretchen. Um, 62% of Americans believe that if they make enough noise, they can make a corporation pay attention to them as a consumer. Mm -hmm. But only 4% of Americans believe that if they make enough noise, they can make their government pay attention to them as a citizen which means 96% of Americans think that they can't make enough noise to make their government pay attention to them. That's a, that's a problem. Um, it's a giant problem in a, in a democracy. 65% of Americans believe that they don't matter. The need to matter is, is fundamental. It's in our DNA from the moment that we're born. If that, if that drive goes unmet, society crumbles. I mean, that's when you have people with AR-15s walking into churches and, and, sh- and firing because they are trying to demonstrate that they matter. Um, in, a, in a very, very tragic way. So what seems critical to me is to communicate whatever you're running for, that it is the voter that matters, that mm-hmm. they are the North Star. They are your mission. They're the reason that you're doing this. What I find politicians doing a lot is sniping at each other on Twitter. They might take a cheap shot at Marjorie Taylor Greene, which might feel great in the moment, but is really inside the beltway and doesn't affect the price of rice for anybody. So I think it's important that uh, anyone who is looking to to lead on any level is communicating constantly to the voter, you are the mission. You are what matters. Um, You matter to your family. You matter to your community. You matter to our country. And you matter to our collective future. Um, when, When Donald Trump was running in 2016, they did a study of which were his most effective campaign lines none of which were true, but some were more effective than others. And the one that spiked was when he said, I will be your voice. In other Mm. words, you matter. I thought the the genius of President Biden's State of the Union address was that in every sentence, he was making the American worker the hero of the story. And I don't think it's a coincidence that 72% of Americans love that speech. He was telling them that they mattered, and that's what they need to hear.
1: Fascinating. And those statistics are really very interesting. Gretchen, um, Billy referenced your statistics. Is that the story that you're hearing in the data? Um, What are you finding?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for having me. You know, I worked at Future Majority with Mark Riddle and Future Majority to date has surveyed over 200,000 Americans. So I have seen a lot of data. Uh, I've interviewed multiple hour deep dive interviews over 3000 Americans, and I hear time and time again, you know, across urban, rural, suburban uh, locales, Democrats, Indies, Republicans, every race, income, education level, age, uh, they've shared with me uh, the same story again and again and again, that when they look to the future, they don't have a sense of a vision of what's happening. They have a sense, rather, the despair of despair. uh, The despair is taking hold in America. Uh, They don't feel like they matter. They don't feel in control. Um, When they picture the future, people feel helpless. Um, We need to address that, not by talking in all the ways in which they'll be screwed and saying the sky is falling, but rather by painting a picture of all the ways in which they can thrive. People want to believe in America again. They want to believe in their neighbors again. I'd love to show you some of my work if it's okay. Um, Please do. Thank you so much. In my work, I collect images and videos from Americans who use those videos and images to tell their story, to tell their story and experience of America. And so all of the images that I'm about to share with you are from from those studies. Um, But when people talk about the state of America, they bring in images like this and videos like this. See here, uh, you have people with guns, people with disaster videos, videos that represent America as a joke. People are filled with a sense of uncertainty, fear, uh, worry about the division that they see on the day to day, and a sense of exhaustion.
1: And, and these are-, are videos that, and these are images that people brought into you. They these are not images that you provided to everyone else.
3: Right, they bring this in spontaneously. And and of course, you'd have to be crazy not to see patterns in it when hundreds and hundreds of people are bringing in the same videos and telling you the same story, that they really don't feel heard, that they don't feel seen, that they don't feel that there's a future for them in America they don't have a role. You know, for many, they talk about um, America is sort of a, a failing place. It's not what it used to be, or it's not what it was sold to us as kids. And you know, for many, America is dangerous. You know, one of the stories that I remember so vividly an African American mom from Atlanta talking about last summer about being afraid that she or her kid would be shot on the way to the grocery store, you know, when there were there were tons of shootings, not that they have stopped. But she talked about how in America she felt terrorized. She characterized it as, as squid game. I'm not going to play it for you because of time, but as squid game, right? A place a game where you might get shot or killed at any moment. Right. People are, are, are fearful and, and, and they're worried that America is broken, that it's unfixable. And you hear this again and again, not just from regular everyday people, but also from veterans. I've interviewed a lot of veterans as well. Um, here's one uh, I interviewed from Arizona. He talked about how as an army corpsman, he fought for his country so the country could c- continue to be free. Um, and he said, so we could continue to be a democratic nation. But now it's not the land of the free. It's the land of the privileged. It's the land of the powerful. It's the land of the rich, and the middle class, the lower class. He says we're nothing. We don't matter anymore. We're not people. All we are are statistics. So again and again and again, you see that story of, I don't matter. I'm not seen. Here it is, just in visual form. What Billy said, right? Sixty-five percent of participants say when they asked if they matter in America, not so much or not at all, and 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 that's a problem. But but there's something that we can we can do about that, right? We can tell a story, a future vision of America where where everyone has a role. You know, people wanna believe in America again. They wanna be part of it. And when we don't provide an alternative vision of the future where everyone matters, these fears get weaponized by Republicans. And lastly, when it comes to the story of America, the thing that I hear again and again and again is that Americans, they wanna be the hero of the story. They want to be the star player with the help of elected officials, as, as, as a coach, someone who lays out a vision for the future, inspires us and brings Americans together and gets everyone excited to take on the big challenges we face. And when this happens, you know, when we don't present a better future ahead, all voters want to do is go back to the 50s. And while icebox cakes are super appealing, and they did have good fashion, I will say, uh, it, it it really isn't our best possible future, right. It, it feels safe. They had certainty, they felt they had enough. You know, we need to give Americans their agency get back and help them get to the future that they dream of.
1: Thank you, Gretchen. That's very powerful to, to sort of understand the story and the statistics that we're seeing um, today from the numbers and the perspective of your research. Um, let's now turn to sort of the practical uh, application and, and sort of understanding, Congresswoman Wilde, you are in a very consequential, critical swing district. Are you seeing this? What are you seeing in your district? And does it resonate with what you're hearing about the story of America?
4: Um, well, the short answer is yes, it does. For anybody who doesn't know my district, which is probably most of you, I am in the uh, classic purple district. Um, one of the very few swing districts left in of the 435 districts that make up the House of Representatives. Um, I have almost an equal number of Democrats and Republicans with a very healthy number of independents thrown in. Mm-hmm. And literally, that means that every single vote that I take um, it has to be very carefully weighed by me. And my staff, um, we there's no such thing as just voting the party line um, when you're in this kind of district. And, you know, but we don't see enough of that. But to your points, um, I will tell you that one of one of my mottos is, and it's not an original thought of mine, but, um, you know, most Americans when polled say they have very little confidence in Congress as a body, but most also like their own member of Congress. Um, My goal in my very difficult district is to make sure that no matter what their thought is about Congress as a body, that they feel that I am representing them and that I'm most importantly listening to them. So the point was made earlier That um, and I think it was Billy who said that 62% of Americans believe they can have an influence on a corporation, but that they don't have any influence on government. And that is actually borne out by a poll that we were shown today. Um, It was admittedly shown to us um, at the DCCC, the Democratic uh, campaign arm, but it was done um, by Democratic pollsters. And even they said that voters were equally um, equally to uh, felt that they could not rely upon a Democrat or a Republican member, uh, unnamed, you know, just a generic Democrat or a generic Republican, to effectuate what they wanted to see done by the government, um, and these the numbers were really high. Um, And and it just it's discouraging, I will tell you uh, for us as a whole um, as representatives, but it also makes me realize how important it is that, you know, on an individual basis that we really pay attention in our districts and that we really listen. One of the tools that I have implemented, and by the way, I, I I'll get into this a little bit later, but I've had a lot of consultations with Billy Ray about messaging because um, I found that some of the things that he has helped me with have really done very, very well in my district. But I end every single public town hall and I start them also this way, by thanking them for participating in a democracy in, Mm. in this very democratic action of participating in their elected officials town hall. And then I say to them, and I say it at least twice during every town hall, Everything that I hear from you informs what I do in Washington. And and then we carry forward with that, by the way. I mean, and I'm talking about things like sewer treatment plants that we can help them with a grant through the infrastructure bill to, you know, fix a decaying sewer treatment plant or something like that. And, and this actually happened in the toughest part of my in my district just recently. But the point is that I spend very little time giving my preamble at a town hall or my closing remarks um, and leave as much open time as possible for their questions. Um, And then I try to expound on those as much as possible. And I found that that is probably one of the more effective things that 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 we do.
1: That is that is really excellent. And basically, in essence, you're reminding them. It sounds like and what Billy said earlier, which is that you you, the the voter, the, the citizen, are the hero of the story and that we work for you. So I think that is a message that you're finding resonates. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will get into some of the tactics. And I see some really terrific questions in the chat. So please keep adding them. We do see them and we will definitely get to those. Um, but Billy, let's come back to you for a moment. Um, we've heard a little bit about the data. We've heard about some of the um, on-the-ground realities in some of these swing districts with, with students with with congresswoman wild um what can you tell us about the story what are some of the misconceptions um that are going on in terms of how we talk about the narrative of america today
2: well the biggest is that we're uh, a divided country um, oh. we're not we're not close okay. to a divided country that's that's i think a very very harmful dangerous myth When they put minimum wage on the ballot in Florida, it got 60 percent. When they put it on the ballot in Arkansas, it got 62. And in Missouri, it got 67. These are states where uh, uh, Democrats routinely get their tails kicked. And yet this core democratic economic message is wildly popular. Um, It's also true uh, of abortion, um, basically 66 percent, give or take. Um, agree with the Democratic Party's stance um, on abortion and by the way let's not use the term bodily autonomy anymore let's not use any terms that sound like they were cooked up in the Harvard faculty lounge that's just going to annoy people um, people agree with the Democratic Party on on saving social security they agree with the Democratic Party on um, decriminalizing cannabis on the cost of health care on the cost of prescription drugs on climate rescue and and by the way um, Susan, I would definitely suggest that you change the name of that committee, not climate change, but climate rescue, because climate change tends to scare the hell out of people and climate rescue intimates that we have a plan, um, which will will increase the belief that people have in their government. Um, But the bottom line is, if you throw in guns, and you take out the term universal background checks, which sound big brothery and and just annoys people, and replace that term with violent history checks, 95% of America comes with you. So if people fundamentally agree with one party, um, and when I say people, I mean 66% of the country versus 33% of the country, that's not a divided country. That is a country the the vast majority of whom agree with the Democratic Party. So why doesn't the Democratic Party win 66% um, of all elections? Well, I think it's because the Democratic Party doesn't message terribly well. Um, We keep using language that only liberals can hear. Um, Independent voters, and Susan can tell you this, she's got a lot of them in her district, independent voters tend to lean conservative, and they tend to be pretty cranky. And when you say things in a way that only liberals can hear, you are going to tell those independent voters that they don't matter. And that confirms their worst fear about government, and then they are lost to you. Um, As I said, on the substance of issues, we are not a divided nation at all. On cultural issues, we are. And Democrats keep walking through the same field and stepping on the same landmines again and again and again on cultural issues and on the way that they message around them. And until Democrats do better at that, Democrats are gonna keep struggling to hit that 50% mark. It sounds a lot like a, you know, it-
1: talking about messaging and we've all been talking about messaging for several cycles now mm-hmm. that that the struggle is between um the desire to want to be right versus mm-hmm. the desire to be effective um and that's a big communications challenge right you know um if you keep saying the same thing in the same way um people don't hear you and that is that is one of the questions is that one of the reasons why you think that people hear and feel that the country is so divided
2: yeah, I guess my question I would I would send back your way or to the uh, in the direction of anybody who's listening, how does it work with your spouse? Um, when you are determined to be right instead of uh, to be heard, how, how does that work out for you? Uh, typically not well. Um, you have to speak in a language that the person you're trying to convert can actually hear, which means you have to understand their psychological reality. You have to understand what is the what is the fear that they are acting on, what is the desire, um, that they are espousing, until you understand that, you're just talking in an echo chamber. And you may feel great about the points you're making, but you're not gonna get anywhere. And if it's true in your marriage, it's you know quadruply true in politics.
1: Very much so, absolutely. Um, why do we, if, if the country is not as divided, and, and I know we certainly uh, framed today's conversation about messaging and communicating across the uh, political divide, Why why do we keep talking about this political divide if it doesn't really exist? Why does it keep coming up?
2: Because we are literally uh, speaking to people in a language they cannot hear. If you gave a thousand Americans the same personality trait test, conservatives and liberals would score differently on that test. Our brains are wired in a different way. It's something I talk to Susan about all the time and that she has completely embraced, um, which I think speaks Uh, very well of her um, and is, I think, part of the reason why she's in office for three terms. What makes a conservative a conservative on a psychological level, what binds them together as a political group is their shared fear of chaos. That's underneath every ad run by every Republican in my lifetime. In 1988, the Willie Horton ad, which essentially destroyed Michael Dukakis, said that if you vote for Michael Dukakis, a Black convict on furlough is going to come murder your family. Democrats are soft on crime, chaos. Then after 9-11, Democrats are soft on terror, chaos. Now it's Democrats are for open borders. Democrats are for burning cities. Democrats want to defund the police. Democrats are socialists. Democrats don't care if your son wants to be your daughter. Democrats don't care if AI takes your job. It's all the same argument that Democrats are the bringers, the agents of chaos. If you give a conservative the choice between authoritarianism and what they perceive to be chaos, They will pick authoritarianism every time. It scares them less. So what Democrats have to do, in my view, is they have to rebrand what chaos is. Chaos is January 6th. Chaos is people showing up at polling places with an AR-15. Chaos is, you remember those 30 uh, cars that were backed up in a hospital parking lot because we didn't have an answer for COVID? That's chaos. We, as a party, are the representatives of just calm, effective government. That's all we want to do. We don't want to rule, We just want to govern. We just want to make things work. We want to continue working for working people. We are the actual antidotes of chaos. And when you when I mean when I say that, what I mean is that politically, the antidote to chaos is not order. Politically, the antidote to chaos is community. What I find from Gretchen's polling again and again and again is how badly people want community. And so Susan, can walk into a room full of Republicans and say, look, I think for the last seven years, you've been told that you have to hate your neighbor over political differences. And I think you're exhausted. And I want you to get your neighbors back. I want you to have community again. I want you to go back to a time where you're thinking about bake sales and Little League and looking after each other's kids. I want you to know that if you're on the side of the road with a flat tire, that a neighbor's going to pull over to help you without first checking to see if your bumper stickers match theirs. That's what I want for you. Community. But if you want to get your neighbors back, you've got to have your neighbors back. You have to start listening again. You have to start lowering your voice again. You have to start lowering your arms again. It's the only way we're going to heal this district, this state, and this country. Um, that part, that last part's really important because it gives them agency as part of this, the solution to the problem, which tells them, once again, that they matter.
1: Community over chaos, what a great bumper sticker right well, there. I,
2: I, look, uh, I, I would say that what we're what we're preaching here is community over chaos, votes over violence, truth over tantrums, laws over lies, books over bans. You know, I could alliterate all day, but you get the point. It's all the same exactly. message.
1: And it's the messaging. Um, and great point. So Susan, how are you finding this concept of, of community over chaos? Is it resonating? Have you been able to utilize this a little bit in your districts at the town halls you mentioned?
4: I've actually used um, some of the lines that Billy just delivered <laughs> myself and I always let him know that I'm going to be plagiarizing, um, <laughs> he's paraphrasing him heavily. Um, and they go over very, very well because oh. quite honestly, um, I, I think people want to be reassured um, when all of, that they are hearing is about chaos right um and and it does for whatever reason sell ratings and that's why mainstream television still invites um the far extremists of both parties as guests far more often than they invite me or other moderates on either side um but people this is what is coming into them all the time is chaos 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 they actually like to be reassured that we can, that we either are a more, if I'm talking about my district, we are a more cohesive community than is being portrayed on national television. And I often will kind of come up with some specific examples of things where the community has come together in ways that have demonstrated not only bipartisanship but really non-partisanship, you know, when there have been tragedies and and that kind of thing. Um, but I also hold it out as something that we can strive for more of. And um, quite honestly, people eat it up. And I'm not just giving them platitudes and saying things that I think that they want to hear. I, what I feel like I'm doing is empowering them to recognize that exactly what what billy just said uh, you know that you're being instilled with this fear of chaos when in reality what you should be embracing is all that is good about our community and continuing to build on that and people are very receptive to that it i mean I, not to make it too too um i don't know what the word is for it but but you know, go back, think back to Barack Obama's hope and change theme. It was hugely successful. And now, you know, now it sounds a little trite because a number of years have passed and so forth. At the time, it was exactly what people needed to hear. So it's kind of, and without using those words, hope and change, that's kind of the message I am trying to communicate to folks in my
1: district that I think really are starved for it. And they're still hopeful for it, sounds like. Yeah. You said something yeah, very and
4: let me just say, when they hear me give them specific specific examples that they're all familiar with because they happened in our district, you know, the heads are nodding and they're thinking to themselves, yeah, we're we're better than that. We're better than the way our country's being portrayed.
1: And it's often true when people have a face to their neighbor, it's very hard to say the sort of the mean vitriol that comes out on social media. You said something very interesting, Susan, talk if you have a moment, uh, a little bit about the national media and how they tend to pick up the most extreme voices rather than those that reflect what um, the vast majority. And I think that's sort of a little bit what Billy and Gretchen's data and messaging are talking about a little bit, too. Are you finding that your... um, voters and and the people in your district are less politically interested in sort of the extreme measures and more focused on the community over chaos. Uh,
4: they uh, the voters are yes, um but they are still very much influenced by okay. what they hear on the news. Okay. And so when the guests over and over and over again are on cable news are from the far, far left or the far, far right, they tend to, to believe that that's really uh, representative of what's happening in Washington. And so I spend a lot of time talking. One of the things that I do is I often talk about some, the what, the term I always use is that people who are moderates like me are not sexy enough for cable news. And then I go on to describe some of the bills that I have actually worked on that have passed with bipartisan support, worked across the aisle with Republican co-sponsors. And as I always tell them right up front, I go, these aren't sexy bills. These are bills that actually are really practical. So one that I always pull out is in the beginning of the pandemic Um, when another representative from Pennsylvania, a a Republican, and I introduced legislation so that people who were working as nurses' aides in nursing homes or hospitals could use their on-the-job training towards their ultimate licensure, rather than, which isn't normally the case. You know, normally they have to have X number of hours of specific classroom time, clinical time, et cetera. And the reason for the bill was we had an extreme shortage of nurses aides in all of these venues, nursing homes, hospitals, and so forth. And so by doing that, it incentivized people to stay on the job, not to leave because of the pandemic, because they knew that it would speed up. Well, I can tell just by looking at your faces, yeah, that's not sexy. It's not particularly exciting. But guess what? If you have somebody in a nursing home, a relative, you know, who you feel isn't getting enough attention, you're listening to to that kind of discussion. But most of all, I use that as an example of the kind of thing that we work on that you're never,
1: ever going to hear any cable news host talking about because it just isn't interesting enough the pragmatic part of governing, just as Billy said a little bit earlier that that's what um, people really want. Um, What else, Billy, do you find uh, in terms of the part of the story of America? What do you find that is resonating with voters?
2: Well, there's another thing that I learned from Gretchen. Um, If you poll Americans on what uh, values mean the most to them, freedom is number one, and it's not particularly Mm -hmm. close. Um, In America, freedom outpolls justice as a value uh, by 22 points. Um, which will come as no shock to anybody who's African American, right? Who's saying, "Hey, justice, justice," and white America saying, "Well, yeah, justice. It's important, but what I really want is the freedom to say stupid shit and not be called a racist." Um, and by the way, if you want to know where America stands on equality, equality is 10x down from justice. Freedom is absolutely the most important value uh, for Americans. And in fact, when you at- Gretchen did a, a poll recently where she asked Americans to free associate words. Um, with democracy, freedom was number one. Um, So what Democrats need to learn how to do is use the language of freedom because independent voters by 30% believe the Democrats are more likely to restrict their freedoms than uh, Republicans are. And remember, when I say freedom matters, I mean, the second guns stopped being a safety issue and started being a freedom issue someone could walk into Sandy Hook and shoot 20 kids, and it didn't really change the conversation. The second masks and vaccines stopped being a health issue and started being a freedom issue, it wobbled into Weirdsville uh, pretty big time. So Democrats have to learn to use the language of freedom, and we never do. It's it's a word we don't claim, Um, and yet it's so central to our party. Even when you're discussing something as anodyne, as infrastructure, the language should be, hey, that rural broadband is going to free you to connect to the global economy. That high-speed rail is gonna free you from three hours in traffic. That bridge, once we fix it, is gonna free you to get your kid to school safely. That's a, It's a language we don't use. And yet, when Republicans took a freedom away um, in terms of the Dobbs decision on abortion, they gave Democrats an issue that we can run on for the next 20 years. And, it, and you can point to specific races all across the country where the Republican lost because the Democrat was able to say, hey, with this Dobbs decision, they took your religious freedom and replaced it with government control. And that was a winning message everywhere that it was tried. Everybody loves religious freedom. Everybody hates governmental control. And they were married in this one issue. That's, that's the ultimate lab experiment for why freedom matters so much as an issue.
1: That's very interesting. And Gretchen, he referenced your research. Talk a little bit about, if you could, about what you're seeing um, and how freedom is resonating in your data.
3: Yeah. I mean, everything Billy is saying is straight from the data. You know, look, when Americans talk to me left and right, uh, when they talk about their hopes and fears, they tell a story where they describe lack of freedom being one of their biggest fears. You know, here are some images from a study I did on nuclear weapons. This is They talk about a, a world in, uh, in which they, they lose their freedom because robots are taking their jobs because they're losing their humanity. Uh, they talk about uh, losing freedom when the earth is sick make, because of our bad choices and they're no longer able to go outside and breathe the air and have clean water. Uh, They talk about losing freedom uh, in terms of of being tethered to their smartphones um, and losing touch with with their fellow humans, Um, losing freedom because we've spent too much and the loss of agency that comes with that, and and the fear of not being heard by their government or people who can make a difference in their lives, and and the loss of control that comes from seeing your kids grow up and not really knowing if they have a better future ahead there is a profound lack of control that Americans feel like they have today. And it's strongly associated with that lack of freedom um, and the fear of chaos um, that Billy referenced and, and Susan referenced as well. But you know, when they talk about the better future ahead, I see a consistent pattern again and again and again. Um, the best possible future that Americans have is one of freedom. It's the ability to go anywhere and do anything and travel like the Jetsons, like Donald Trump mentioned of all people, Um, but to be able to travel freely, to be able to make choices about your life, to have access to abundant resources, to have healthcare, to have education, to be able to freely make choices um, for a better future for yourself and your kids. Um, to be able to dream big. Um, America is about risk and optimism, and it's about being able to chart your own path. And Americans have internalized that as one of the biggest dreams they have. Um, And um, as well, it's it's about moving forward with the wisdom of generations. It's about connecting with each other, making the world better for our children and generations to come. Um, You know, when Americans are asked, what they're most proud of about America. One of the things that really um, comes up again and again is this idea of coming together through hard times and doing something big, despite all challenges ahead, coming together and making things happen. And recent research that I advised on suggests that one of America's proudest moments for Democrats and Republicans alike is actually how we came together as a nation after 9-11. And there's a lot to be said about what that moment was. And it wasn't all pretty, A lot of it was not. But the acts of community that we saw, of coming together to work on something bigger than all of us, of helping each other, offering help and and needing help from each other, without asking the other person whether they were a Democrat or Republican, that sense of mission and purpose, despite our differences, was deeply meaningful for all Americans. And that and that's why I want to underline what Billy is saying about community. It is absolutely critical um and just one more point if i if i may here excuse me here um we talk about americans coming together and and being endowed with the sense of value um you know we tested this uh, a, a year or so ago uh, this line we must invest in america because americans are worth it when you invest in americans our potential is limitless Americans want to believe in America again, they wanna believe in the future again, and they wanna believe in their ability to work with each other um, in community. And we see that more broadly too, this sense of community, this desire for calm, for order, for structure. Um, One of the attitudinal segmentations that I work with sort of looks at the different values that people have across American society. One of the recent things that we've noticed as we've been tracking this, usually these segments, right, People power, sort of our more progressive folks, don't tread on me, our most conservative folks, and if you say so, and tough cookies in between. Usually you see each of these clusters living at about 25% each. And what we found is that people are really tilting into that moderate conservative space where they're looking for that calm, they're looking for that community. Um, you know, 45% of the country up from 25% more than ever before, and this I think just underlines the point of how important community is to Americans right now, especially over chaos.
1: Um, very much so. And I know that we don't have a lot of time, so I want to make sure we keep going ahead. But certainly, um the immigrant communities, immigrants from around the world, um, this is data that supports the fact that uh, there's a lot of um, preference for community over chaos, believing in the American dream and a number of other um, characteristics. but what i'm what I'm hearing from all of you, is, is really that the message and how we frame it is as important as the issue itself. So Billy, uh, let's take a story here. Um, let's say for example, you are in a room full of 500 Republican leaning voters mm-hmm. and the issue is, is um, uh, guns. H- how do you talk about it? What would you do?
2: I would love that opportunity. Okay. Um, let me give you a teeny bit of context. There's an expression that I think all politicians uh, and elected officials should know. Susan certainly knows it. it's called breaking the frame. And what breaking the frame means is that when you're asked a question, that's an obvious trap, you don't answer the question. You reject the premise of the question. It's difficult for fair-minded people to do because they feel when asked a direct question that they're duty bound to answer it. But of course you're not. And in Susan's business, like in my business, if you're explaining, you're losing. What breaking the frame means is um, 2002, Uh, George W. Bush wants to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. He sends Dick Cheney on all the Sunday morning talk shows to to validate that decision. And on every Sunday morning talk show, Cheney is asked, okay, but what's the cost of going in terms of men, material, and money? On every question, on every talk show, he broke the frame. He said, what's the cost of not going? Which is kind of brilliant when you think about it. And unfortunately he won the argument. Had they asked uh, Hillary Clinton the exact same question, she probably would have said, well, I think we're gonna be there for 20 years. We're gonna spend about $5 trillion and maybe 7,000 American debt, which is exactly the wrong answer for that question. If you're trying to influence people, Um, forgive my dog. Um, Also uh, another Hillary example in um, 2016, when she was running, remember October 7th of that year, the Access Hollywood tape came out. And um, two days later was a presidential debate. She was asked about the Access Hollywood tape. And instead of breaking the frame, she answered a direct question, talked about sexual predators for 90 seconds and didn't change anybody's mind. But had she broken the frame, imagine a world in which her answer would have been, I'm not going to comment on the Access Hollywood tape. The world can make up its own mind about Donald Trump. My my focusing on that tape won't get one of you a job, won't get one of you health care. It won't build one school or clean one river. That's what my administration is going to be about. That's what I'm going to spend my 90 seconds on. I know she wins Pennsylvania, and I suspect she wins the entire country by 10 points, but she couldn't do it. Okay, so with all that as a long winded um, setup, if I were in a room with 500 Republicans who have asked me, why am I taking their guns away? I would break the frame. I would and say, by the
4: way, I just have to interrupt to say, Billy has walked me through this, and I have used this, and it works. So.
2: That was
1: my next question for you. So, okay. We'll,
2: so, here's what I would say in that room I would say, look, you guys are not the problem. You're responsible gun owners. You practice gun discipline. You train. You teach your kids. You stow your weapons safely. You're not the issue. Own 10 guns, own 20, own 50. I don't care. The people that I have to worry about are the people who aren't responsible gun owners, who don't practice gun discipline who don't train, who don't stow their weapons safely because they can get your kids killed in a church, in a mall, in a movie theater, in a school, in, a, in a, a grocery store. Those are the people that we have to work on. And I need your help with that. In other words, give them agency. And then I would add, and before some career politician tells you that we have no common ground on this issue, use your common sense as Pennsylvanians. As Americans, we already have all kinds of fences around the Second Amendment that we've all agreed to. You can't own a tank. We all agree on that. You can't own a surface-to-air missile. We all agree on that, too. You have to stow your weapons safely. These are not controversial issues. You believe in violent history checks. So do 95% of Americans, including 73% of NRA members. There are lots of issues on which we agree. Let's start there. That's how you break the frame.
1: Um, that's a brilliant concept. That's an actionable tip for all of us. Community chaos, breaking the frame. Susan, how how has it worked in your district? And have you used it with guns? Anything else that it's worked with?
4: Well, so it worked in my district. My most difficult issue that I have to address is guns. It's a very nuanced issue in my district. Um, but before I get to whether it's worked or not, let me go step back. Before I had. This wonderful training by Billy about breaking the frame. And he and I have talked about a number of different situations where, and how to break the frame, including one where I just put my foot in my mouth on something and it was unique to me. It wasn't anything that would apply to other politicians, called Billy, told him about it. And, you know, we talked about how do you break that frame. But the conventional democratic answer to that question from a room where you're asked, why why are all you Democrats trying to take our way our guns? If you were to talk to your usual Democratic messaging consultants, the answer would start with, I just want you to know that I really believe in the Second Amendment. In fact, you know, my grandfather was a hunter, my father was a hunter, I mean, all kinds of things like that. And I'm not, you know, and then you would go into uh, statistics uh, and that kind of thing instead of, and 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 I did that, and everybody I know does that. As soon as I had this conversation with Billy, I started, the first thing I do is tell the audience, you're not the people I'm worried about. You're not, I'm not, I don't want to take any of your guns away. I, I, I know all of you to be law-abiding citizens um, who care deeply about your children and other people's children, and you don't want to see anybody shot up at school. Yeah, the people we are worried about are the people who don't follow all those, don't have those um, morality, that morality and, and, um, and don't think the way that we do and have either for psychological and mental health reasons, a dangerous propensity or because of just pure evil, they do. But it's not, it's not you people. I'm not trying to take away your guns. And then I go on beyond that, but it is such an icebreaker with an audience. And I do kind of what, what Billy said and what he taught me to do by saying, I know that all of you keep your guns out of the hands of children. I know that all of you practice safe storage. I know, you know, so on and so forth. So you're essentially flattering the audience and making them feel as though you respect them as smart, capable gun owners. Because in my district, I'm never going to convince people that they shouldn't own guns. It's just not going to happen. Um, Now, the assault weapons ban might be a slightly different issue, which I haven't even had a conversation with Billy about yet, and I welcome one one of these days. But in in general, you're just not going to convince people that you're right and that oh yeah she believes she says she believes in the second amendment so she must be okay it's good. that that those are just platitudes and they hear platitudes from politicians all the time so it's worked
1: so rethinking and and sort of reframing and breaking the frame allows you to rethink how we message and i think that's one of the cornerstones of what we've been talking today is, um, is Susan, you're actually putting all of this into practice in a very successful way in your district, but it's how do we communicate as as it?
4: Billy is at it yet, but <laughs> i more
1: uh, collectively, collaboratively. Um, Billy and Gretchen, and maybe if we can sort of, um, I, I know that we're short on time, and I think we've asked a little bit of some of the questions that I saw in the chat, but one in particular. How, how do we frame a more positive message and what might that message be and, and how does democracy stand with America then a little bit? Um, how do you see the pivoting from the divide to the unite, to the collective, the community over the chaos? How do we
2: shift that? Well, uh, Gretchen, I'll start and then you can, you can take over. Um, the first thing is exactly what Susan does when she starts off a meeting by thanking people and congratulating them for being there because what we've learned that we didn't know um, since 2016, and it seems obvious, but no one ever had to say it before, is that democracy is a decision. Democracy is not a given like gravity or the sun rising in the East. Democracy happens because the country insists that it happen. When you show up at a town hall, you're making that decision. When you vote, you're making that decision. When you learn the difference between two candidates, you're making that decision when you decide to support the candidate who supports voting rights you're making that decision and when you bring your mom and your mom's sister and your mom's sister's friend to vote too you're making that decision but it is a decision it is not automatic and that's news to the american people because i think america until the election of donald trump assumed that democracy was just always going to be there and we found out how fragile it actually was and is Um, You know, 56% of America, including 25% of Republicans, believe that MAGA is a threat to democracy. And if you ask Americans, are there more extremists on the right or on the left, for the first time in American history, they now say the right. For all those years, when it was the radical left, the radical left, you can now say the radical right, and it sticks. It has legs, because people know it intuitively to be true. They've seen it happen. And more importantly, and this directly impacts Susan and her district when you ask suburban women, are there more um, extremists on the right or on the left? By 22 points, suburban women say the right. And when you ask voters 18 to 34, by 27 points, that voting group says there are more extremists on the right. These are all people who understand that democracy is a decision, and they are starting to make that decision every single day. And we we must nurture it and we must applaud them. And if we do, they will keep coming back and they will keep making that decision.
1: Great point. And and as you said, Susan's already doing that in district. Gretchen, is that what you're seeing in your data? Yeah, absolutely.
3: I mean, we know that audiences are weary and we can't rouse people to fight for abstract ideas. I've heard that story about the foxhole, right? You know, you don't fight for your country, you fight for the guy next to you. It's the same thing here. And it's what I think Susan is doing so brilliantly when she talks about her community first. People will fight for their family, they'll fight for freedom, they'll fight for their communities and their kids. You know, keeping it focused on what really matters um, to Americans on the day-to-day through the lens of their own experience is absolutely critical, not just from a messaging perspective, which it works, but because it's right
1: that's that's wonderful and i know that we are down to the last um, can I just couple, say couple yeah please speaker. do Susan
4: yeah so i also love the term, the phrase breaking the frame what we are told as candidates is if you get asked something that you don't want to answer pivot that's the big, that's the magic word pivot well the problem with pivoting is because, is that the audience can always see you pivoting they know you are not answering the question, and it bugs the crap out of them. Whereas breaking the frame, you are addressing the sub something in the substance of the question, but it is but you're uh, you're answering it um, with your own um, spin on it. I guess is is the the answer is what I want to say, um, and it just it it's a completely different concept than pivoting. And that's, I just want to make that point because we're just told over and over as candidates to pivot.
2: Tonjo, I want to throw one more thing in there. I know we're we're pressed up for time and-, and Please get, do, Billy. I, I get excited, but- um, one We're going to come things, back,
1: by the way, just so you know. Have... The
2: fact, when we talk about the fact that this is not a divided country and that the only way uh, uh, people like Susan could lose elections is on cultural issues. One of the things that I think is important for the people listening today in terms of the way they communicate with their families, with their friends who may not agree with them politically. There's a very specific way that you can alienate those people. And there's a very specific way that you can bring those people closer to you. And what we need to understand is that as Democrats, we tend to insist that people celebrate things they have just learned how to tolerate. And that's not the same thing. If you go up to a, 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 a mill worker in Scranton And you say gay rights, he'd say, "Okay, fine. I don't care. I know a gay guy. He works in HR. He's fine and I'm fine. It's not an issue. But don't tell me that if I don't march in a parade, I'm a homophobe.
4: Very true. And if you ask him
2: about Black people, he'd say, yeah, fine, great, whatever. They're fine and I'm fine. But don't tell me that if I don't like critical race theory, I'm a racist. But we as Democrats insist that if you don't come all the way with us, that you're a knuckle dragger and we're going to cancel you. And that's why in every election, what it comes down to, and I've talked to a zillion people and so has Gretchen, what it comes down to in every election in a swing district, the voters tell you the same thing. The Republican is an asshole and the Democrat is an elitist and the asshole never made me feel dumb. And that is how we alienate voters. And until we stop, we're going to keep struggling. We have to meet them where they are and respect their fears and their wishes. They are as legitimate as ours. Once we do that, we'll start winning two-thirds of the elections, and the Republican Party will be forced to heal itself. And then we will actually have a functioning political war between two parties that are worthy of it.
1: Very true, barely. And and that's a very good point to end on, uh, you know, something that we do uh, or that I do in my my day job. And culture, which is what you referenced, cultural change is evolutionary, not revolutionary. And when you try to make it too fast, um, people in any society uh, push back. So that's a really good point. Um, I know that we're hitting right at 8.01, so Susan Lehman is probably uh, hoping that we uh, wrap up, which we will. I wanna thank everyone, particularly uh, Billy Gretchen and Susan for this really interesting and very um, insightful panel. And to everyone, all of your engagement in the chat was great, all of the questions, the dialogue. I know that we will be back on again with the four of us, uh, perhaps in six months to sort of do an update on the status and see how uh, the messaging is going and see how it's going in district as well, um, sort of an on the ground checkpoint. So with that, I wanna say thank you to everyone.